0: Yes, there we are ladies and gentlemen. Hi, my name is Luke Thomas. This is episode 20. Make sure this is working right. Episode 20 of the Luke Thomas live chat. I hope you are doing well. Um, yes, we're going to get to Wilder Fury today. We're going to get to UFC Auckland, maybe some Bellator 239, Bellator Dublin 240 as well, depending on your questions. We'll react to the Joshua Fabia interview. we got a lot to do today. So without further ado, let us get things going all right and we are back let's make sure this is working uh nope it's not actually hang on that's interesting uh let's see here main mm-hmm. why is that not working that's interesting uh, let's see. Da-da-da-da-da. Main subscribe. Well, that's odd. Hmm. I don't know why that's not working. That's weird. Oh, there we are. Let's see if that holds. A little subscribe notification there. Probably not, right? Yeah. Something. Well, okay. Now it's working. All right. Um, thank you guys so much for watching. As I mentioned, my name is Luke Thomas from the Luke Thomas Show, Sirius XM One Fifty Six. You want more information? description box, I am as well from uh, Showtime, I have a show called Morning Combat, if you want more information, in the description box, and then this is my personal YouTube channel, Uh, as you can see, look at that, took forever to finally get this uh, goddamn uh, screen, a windscreen on it, but we are cooking with gas, so I appreciate everyone's patience with that, and of course like this video and subscribe to this channel. Okay, you guys know the drill. I put up a question thread around noon every Thursday. Now, I did not uh, i did do that yesterday, but we didn't go to our normal time today. My normal time is noon, East Coast time, on Fridays. I did not do that because um, my radio show got flipped with Ock and Barack, who are out in Las Vegas for the Wilder Fury fight. Their only time slot they could get on Radio Row was 3 to 6, so we just swapped time slots for today. But uh, I'll be back to normal next week, so all's fair in love and war. Okay, appreciate you guys. Uh, let's see, let's take a look at these questions. Anyway, I appreciate everyone who left the question. I'm going to try the new Mountain Dew Zero Sugar. I've never had it before, but we're going to try it. It's not, a, not, it's not payola. They didn't pay me for it. As you can see, I also got a haircut, which means I'm looking not completely decrepit. Everyone asks me about the shirt. It's a uh, tailor-made shirt by my guy Judd Lively. Hit him up if you want more. I tried to make a bunch of these like the pro wrestling tees, but people did not like that, so I can't. But I can have one for personal use. Okay. Let's get going here. Um, First question. All right, Luke. I saw the interview with Joshua Fabia. This is the coach of Diego Sanchez. My question is, how in the hell did you stay so calm... Talking to that dude. And if you want to blow off some steam, I would love, in all caps, to know a few things that you would have liked to say to him in general or in response to something he said. So the way that worked was that was on my radio show. And uh, you notice there were sort of two parts to the interview. And the reason why is because we have to break uh, on the hour at the 12-minute mark, at the 27-minute mark, and then we can play with the last one, but usually around the 45 or 46-second mark. If we go over the 12-minute mark, we have to do what's called double-breaking, where we have to like save up all of our breaks towards the end of an hour or half-hour mark. We'll do it on occasion, but we don't like it because when you double-break, people tune out because your, your breaks end up being like seven minutes long. It's just not good for your show. We've double-braked for uh, broken or whatever the word is for guests before. We've never double-broken twice. We double broke twice on that show just to make sure we could get everything in. And even then, that wasn't enough. There was a bunch of stuff he was saying due to clock restrictions. There was a lot of things I would have loved to have interjected on, and I just did not get a chance. So to answer the second part first, there's a lot of stuff I just did not have time to get to. So I I had said to my producer, what are like three or four, maybe five essential questions, like no matter what, we got to get these in. Those I got in, but there was a bunch of stuff he raised like in real time, like... We wasted a bunch of time on managerial duties and lawyer stuff that, you know, I would have loved to have gone a different direction, but I was hampered for time. So, you know, one of the benefits of being on a radio is that you're live. One of the downsides is that you have to manage that clock and that can often impede with the way you want to do things. So that was how I'd answer that. Now, how did I stay so calm? Very easily. Um, I know I had a lot of people being like, how did you stay so calm? I wanted to go crazy. I did not. I did not. I did not want to go crazy. I want to take a step back on this one. Um, If you were paying attention, and I picked this up right away when he started talking, there's a bunch of different attitudes you can take to an interview. You have to ask yourself, how is the subject going to be when we talk? And what do you want out of it? And what's the best way to get from there to there? Uh, So here's my attitude. My attitude was I wanted him to answer straightforward questions. What are your qualifications to manage? Um... How can it be that you can do all of these services by being only one person when most people have that diversified among the people who have specialization, whether it's cornermen, coaches, trainers, managers, you name it, um, things like that, right? Straightforward questions about how he operates, what his qualifications are, what his theories of cornering might be. And everything else was kind of a bonus. Um, so that was my main objective, and I had noticed he was, I'd seen online some stuff about it, but Really, what I had picked up on when the minute he started talking was that he was very pissed off. Not so much at me, but at the MMA community. And I thought, well, there's a couple of ways you can get to a, to somewhere else. Who was texting me right as the show starts, because of course they are. Um, you have to decide what is the best approach to get what you want. A lot of people want to go just fire and brimstone all the time. That might be valuable in certain circumstances. Like, give you an example, it's a fictional one, but it's sort of illustrative. A few good men where you had Tom Cruise as the lawyer, forget his name, and then you had Colonel Nathan Jessup, the Marine, who had told people to abuse this guy in the name of hazing, um, and then they all tried to cover it up. To get him to admit to it, you had to like browbeat this guy and kind of trick him a little bit and like really you know bang your fist down and demand righteous justice he had to be he had to be kind of pulled into it it was immediately obvious to me that this guy was one very angry and two he did not need to be pulled to anything in fact what he wanted to do was just talk so I thought I have to corral this so that he doesn't ramble and go on directions that we don't need to go into like getting after Jackson wink there's a Conversation to be had about Jackson Wink, but that was not the time. And then the other thing I thought was, um, you you have to make sure that you, in the spots that are important, make sure you get as much clarification as possible. But I wasn't, I didn't feel like I needed to browbeat him. Remember, they had to convince Colonel Nathan Jessup to acknowledge he had ordered the code red. What if instead he was just perfectly willing to volunteer that information? Would you need to go there and fire and brimstone down? you wouldn't you just have to let him talk so that was my that was my approach my approach was let's see how he feels let's see what he's up to he was ready to talk he was ready to say how he felt and i wanted to press him where i thought it was important to get as much clarification as possible but when he was insulting dc and joe rogan and jackson wink i got to tell you i wasn't even i didn't feel anything i didn't it didn't it didn't bother me i mean I, it's not that i agree with it per se it's just i was so focused on what needed to be said from my vantage point, what needed to be corralled and contained and, and how we had to steer, I didn't... It did, It was in one ear out the other, that stuff. I really, honest to God, I... And also, like, if you maintain a neutral or semi-neutral mental posture, like, what is your attitude here? I'm merely looking to get answers to basic questions and then to let this guy have an opportunity to say his piece. Him having a lot to say is not an impediment to what your objective is. If you were watching and you are not liking what he was saying, well, then there was probably a lot that pissed you off with that stuff, right? I mean, that so you're coming at it from a different position. I was coming at it with, I got this thing in real time that I have to do. Here are the parameters in which I'm trying to define this interaction. Here are my goals. How is the subject coming to me? You know, is he upset? Is he reserved? Does he not want to say anything? Does he want to say anything? But when people are ready to just volunteer information, let them volunteer it. Um, there are some rules about that in terms of like platforming people. And then again, you got to press them where it matters. But in general, um, I feel like I did what I was mostly supposed to. He wanted to get his word out there. That's part of what an interview is about, right? Both sides need to feel like they got something out of it. On the other hand, I don't feel like what he said was especially exonerating. In fact, I think it was quite the opposite. For a video of mine to have around 80,000 views, which it has right now, the typical uh, comment count is around five to 600. We're currently bordering on 3,200 for him. So it's about six times the normal rate. And if you look at the comments and I think the general feedback in which I've gotten – I don't think a lot of you found his answers particularly convincing as well. And it wasn't because he didn't have an opportunity to clarify. He did have an opportunity to clarify. I just don't think he either knows how to or he can't or, I, I, again, I don't know. But if you are asked a series of straightforward questions, what are your qualifications, and your answers hinge on things like, I didn't know we needed certain signposts to get to the place we're going, You know, that is, that's not the answer that you need to be given, especially if you're cornering somebody um, in a fight where they have a lot to lose and a lot to gain, but a lot to lose. So the answer is just decide if you're doing interviews, decide where you need to end up. How do you get there? What is the subject giving you? And then form a strategy, have one in advance, have one ready to accommodate in real time as well. Pretty, pretty straightforward. Next one. How did you hold a serious conversation with Joshua Fabia? This person writes, he seemed like a Picasso of lies. Again, I was just focused on my objective. I did not want that to be over. And I mean, if I could get bonus, that'd be great. But the basic questions I wanted, at least attempted to answer, uh, you know, things about magic on his website and stuff like that. um, I got to all of that. I got to the, I got to the core of what I wanted. So, Is yelling at him going to get me there? Don't think so. Is being super full of righteous indignation going to get me there? No. I mean, I wasn't doing an act per se, but I was calm, professional, and then maintained this to get to a space where somebody feels like they had their say. And so do you and me. And I I think I did. Again, not, not in totality, but in parts that I needed to. Um, how hard was it to keep it together, speaking to Diego's new coach? The only part that was hard about keeping it together was there were so many spots where I wanted to like stop it and be like, what about this, what about this, what about this, and there was just no time. That's the only real hard part. That was the part I was like, you know. Um, I just couldn't give any more. We, we were just out of air time. We could not double break a third time. That would be, I've never even heard of something like that. We didn't even do that for Mayweather McGregor stuff. Um, I'm going to skip one. Cause these are all kind of about the f- interview. So I'll come back to this one about Gaethje. Sorry. Um, Poirier, how many times did you die inside during the interview with Diego Sanchez's coach? Not much. Now this is a better question. Please reflect on the Joshua, f- Joshua Fabia interview. What are your thoughts after speaking with him? Okay. Good question. So after speaking with him, I would say the following here is my hunch of things. First of all, it's kind of interesting. The week began with did Diego quit? Is he a quitter? And there, you know, everyone's got their own debate about it. I tend to think he quite obviously decided he'd had, had enough. But given that promoters have been sticking it to fighters all these years, splitting their purses up between show and win, and that uh, you know he's going through a divorce, and you know you have a financial incentive to just say fine. I, I, you know, it's hard for me to get really upset about it. Plus, he's been such a blood and guts fighter for so long. You know, if he, this happens again, well, that's different. But For the one time, I can just, I I just, I have a hard time holding it against Diego. It's interesting now that at the end of the week, that conversation has all but gone away. Now the conversation has shifted entirely to his coach. No one is really talking about did Diego quit, did he not quit? Everything is about what role is the coach playing in his life. Now, I don't know if that was intentional on the part of Fabia. I don't know if that was a goal. Like, I'm going to take the heat off Diego. By going and doing a media tour? Maybe, maybe not. But either way, it has had that practical effect. That's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is that he came off to me, this is my opinion, terribly unconvincing. Terribly unconvincing. I think that one thing that MMA suffers from is credentialism. Where it's like, you can't say anything unless you fought in the cage. You can't say anything unless you're a black belt. You can't say anything unless you've done X, Y, and Z. And to the point where they're trying to wall off conversation. Not to keep out frauds, although it, it can have that effect. But rather to uh, eliminate the ability to receive criticism, even fair, from people who have not done the same exact tasks as you. Right? You feel like they're unqualified because they haven't gone there. But it actually doesn't mean that they're wrong. It's, it's simply a way to avoid criticism. Now, um, I make videos uh, time to time trying to break down technique. But I have to tell you, I'm very, very careful about them. There are things I know a little bit about. I know a little bit about leg locks. Uh, but typically if a fight goes in that direction, unless I really kind of have to talk about it, I don't. Because there's a, more often than not, there's not enough that I know about that. It was never a big part of my training. I did a little bit of it, but when I say a little bit of it, you know, a few months. But it's not, it's not much. It's, really, it's very little, actually. So I'm just not qualified to say a whole lot about it. And you know at the beginning of my videos, I always give you the same disclaimer. Some people are like, why are you giving the disclaimer? This is why I'm giving you the disclaimer. I always say, I do not present this to, be, present this to you to be the only analysis, the best or the most complete. Seek out what other analysts have to say. That's on purpose. So you can cross-reference it. Then, I try to build around it an evidentiary weight. I make a series of claims, and then I show you evidence for it. Right? People are like, how do you know what you're saying is true? Dude, I'm literally showing you the evidence for it. Now, you can say that evidence is, um, doesn't justify the claims. There could, be, there could be a divide there. But I'm trying to show you everything from an evidentiary standpoint. Because they want to eliminate people from having a say and participation in martial arts. Fine. But even with all that, and I've got about a decade in the gym. People always ask me, what's my training experience? About a decade in the gym, okay? Um, a long time. And I don't feel even remotely qualified to corner an amateur fighter in his fight, much less a UFC one. Even just making videos, and the only cost there is like, if I get it wrong, I may I get made to be, look, I get made to be, look. I look bad in the end. Sorry, it's been a long day. That's different than the weight of having to train somebody and get them ready and then corner them. That is an awesome responsibility, dude. Can you imagine if someone's getting their ass kicked and they come back to you between rounds and they're looking at you and saying, what do I do? Dude, you better fucking know the answer or, you, or at least have a good idea, right? And even then, coaches are going to get it wrong. They're going to get it right. But somebody who's been there, somebody who knows – somebody who understands this a little bit, someone who can motivate you. Now, maybe he can do that. I don't know. But I found his answers about the basic mechanics of what he needs to do and what makes him qualified to do it woefully lacking. Did not find it convincing at all. Uh, To me, there is a lot that was wrong there. If you look at his website, there are some stuff, as I mentioned in the interview, that are totally innocuous. Hey, here's fat loss stuff. Here's uh, connective tissue strengthening. Here's um, muscle growth. And even some of that stuff about like, you know, meditation or whatnot, there appears to be some scientific validity to it. It's not for me, but I can imagine someone like Diego might thrive from that and that's fine. But there's also a ton of stuff on there about magic, quite literally the words magic, about the transference of energy between spiritual beings, a bunch of stuff that has very little scientific validity. When I asked what the proof was for it, in the interview, I could not get a straight answer about it. I mean, if you don't have a straight answer about basic questions in general, um, there's going to be a problem there over time, especially when you are tasked with something as with as much gravity as training a guy and getting him ready for a professional fistfight, where there are grave consequences if you don't get that correct. Um, so that's my general view. If you're asking what the the connectivity is between he and Diego. This is my read on it. Again, this is my opinion. I could be wrong. But Diego had a falling out with Jackson Wink, and I don't know who's in the right there. Maybe Jackson Wink was in the right because they're like, dude, we can't do anything for you anymore. And maybe he feels like he's not done, and he wants someone to do that for him. So he had this falling out where it was centered around a lack of attention, a lack of care, right? That's his way of putting it anyway. Whether that's true, decide for yourself. But that's how that's how he frames it. He's also going through this divorce. Well, here comes this guy who, um, it feels like to me, he put his arm around Diego, metaphorically speaking, at a time when Diego really needed someone to put an arm around him, right? I mean, if you're the children of divorced parents, maybe your kids, or sorry, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe your parents got along amicably, dude, for me. My parents did not. And I've seen divorces in terms of other couples just absolutely break people. It's expensive. Your life gets turned upside down. You know, and, and Diego's had a series of, like, these peaks and then these troughs and then these peaks and then these troughs. And I think Diego was at a bit of a trough and a crossroads, frankly, in his professional career. And here came a guy who was willing to put his arm around him. And you know what? I don't think that's nothing. I don't think that's nothing. I really, really don't. I i whether or not he's in a position to do those other things is, a, is an important question, and it's one where I'm answering forthrightly. I don't think he's in a position to do those other things. But everyone's like, oh, he's brainwashing Diego. Well, Diego is also a guy who got hooked up with Dan Quinn and thought Stevia could cure cancer. I had him on my radio show when Diego said oxygenated and alkaline water, I referenced it in the interview, could either, I think it was either help prevent or you know reverse the effects of CTE, one of the two. You know, he is often gullible and not scientifically particularly discerning with these kinds of things. And I don't think, in my opinion, Joshua Fabia is either. But the point being is, Diego's going through this incredibly difficult time in his life. And a guy came around who was willing to be there for him, I think emotionally. And I can understand why that could create a powerful bond. In the end, though, that powerful bond does not give you license to corner a guy. When doing so, at least solo, is completely out of your depth. Uh, I I recognize that there is a credentialism in MMA where if you don't have these super high-level credentials, you get excluded from conversations, and that's not fair. You always have to take seriously the possibility that there could be something to his methods. Everybody kind of goofed on movement training with Conor McGregor, and it turns out there was a little bit something to it. Yes, Part of it was silly, of course, but part of it was kind of real, too, and I think showed itself in the end a little bit. So you have to have a bit of an open mind, but if if I'm asking you a series of basic questions related to an obligation you have to another human being's health and safety, and all the answers I get are essentially non-answers, we have a problem here, right? We have a problem here. I mean, think about it. Gordon Ryan, I think, competes either tonight or this weekend at Substars. He's going up against Tex Johnson. If I had to ask you about Gordon Ryan and his training background, what would you be able to tell me? Just just based off what you know today. A lot, right? You'd be able to know he got his black belt. I think under are Tom DeBlass or Gary Tonin, one of the two. He trains with Gary Tonin and Tom DeBlass and John Danaher, and uh, they come from the Henzo Gracie system. He has won X awards. He is typically known now for his turtle and back attacks, previously part of the Danaher death squad and the leg lock system. Blah, 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 went double gold at ADCC. You could tell me a lot. I could, you could tell me a lot. What can you tell me about Fabia's? who trained him? What, what credentials does he have? Um, um, he, he, he relies on this idea that there's a bunch of videos out there that are exonerating of him. I watch the videos, and I come away not even knowing what I'm supposed to be looking at. Um, now, I've had teachers like him who they didn't bring out knives in the octagon of the Performance Institute like apparently a member uh, Weber-Mech said. Uh, no, not that crazy. But I've had I've had ones where it's like, okay, you know, in this jujitsu school, we're going to learn, um, I don't know, uh, today we're going to learn self-defense. You know, so, you know, street defense. Like, here's what you're going to do in the case of a street. And Like, everyone in every other school is, like, learning baron bolos and, you know, um, how to sink the hooks on a person who, you know, after a chair sit and stuff like that. Uh, And they didn't do that. So, okay, some people have unorthodox methods. Um, I cannot speak to the totality of Joshua Fabia's training repertoire. And I think that people are not understanding the role that this guy, I think, is playing in Diego's life at a very pivotal time. And Diego does have some culpability about his lack of discernment from people's expertise. On the other hand, when it comes to the basic question of, you know, why are you the guy who's qualified to be the only one in his corner... Um, and I I remember even when I asked him about giving corner advice, he's like, you know, it's all muscle memory. What am I going to say to this grand fighter? It's like, holy shit, dude, these are all the wrong things to say. And we know that from the weight of experience over and over and over and over again. Um, he asked, how do you know wrestling works? Well, dude, we got thousands of years of experience. That's how we know, right? These are sort of silly questions to be asking about things. So I think there are parts to who he is that are genuine in terms of, the value he provides to Diego. I think the credentialism in MMA is a little bit too... It's not really about your credentials sometimes. It's just about excluding people from the conversation. And I think we've often mocked um, unusual training methods and then come to find out later on there could be some value to them. On those levels, I don't really have a lot to say negatively about uh, Fabio's work. But on the core foundational stuff as it relates to his occupation and his... uh, belonging there and his ability to do those jobs in an effective way, uh, I did not come away convinced. And I don't think hardly any of you did either. And the reason is pretty obvious. You had 45 minutes to answer straightforward questions and I didn't get a straightforward answer. That's about as simple as that. All right. In an interview scenario such as the one you had with Fabia, have you ever had misgivings for giving someone the platform to speak? There's a question for you. It's a good question. I'm not dogging you at all. It's a a phenomenal question. It's it's actually important. When have you ever seen me interview? uh, There's actually one case. But when have you ever seen me interview a somewhat disreputable figure more than once? The answer is, depending on your perspective about this, Probably only Colby. And when I say disreputable, you know, he's not in the sense that I'm talking about someone who's like not qualified to do things. Colby's in the elite welterweight and earned his way there. What I mean is he's obviously doing an act. You know, I would love to talk to Colby again, but I don't want to do it as long as he's going to have a MAGA hat and shades on. You know, and if that's the thing that he needs to do for his career, I'm not judging it. Like, do what you got to do, man. And and honestly, I think it's work to a pretty large degree, but I have to have conversations with real human beings. But in terms of like, trainers, managers, other actors in the space who were, there was real ethical questions about them. How many times have you seen me interview him twice? Never. Never seen him, okay? Number one, I I don't know what the purpose would be of speaking to Fabio again unless there were dramatic changes to what had happened in his life and unless he was more forthright in discussing some of the things that I felt I did not get straightforward answers to. I think that's the first. The second thing I would say is... um, um again, it, it depends what you want out of an interview. I wanted to him, he felt like the MMA community was pushing back against him. So I felt like keeping that up would not be productive for the purposes of getting more information. So while I I wanted to let him speak, and I think I I think I did that. I think I gave him an opportunity to speak. Uh on the other hand, what I wanted to see was um I can't let him just say whatever he wants forever and then like endorse his methods. I wanted him to explain his methods. I wanted him to justify his methods. I wanted him to answer for the questions. I wanted him to tell me how he felt about things. And again, there, I think there are some criticisms being lobbied his way that are not fair. Um, and I asked him about that. But I also wanted him to answer for the things that mattered the most. Because in the end, you know what this is all really about, dude? It's all really about Diego. It's like in the end, here's what's really this comes down to. It's like I think people really care about Diego. And I think people are just concerned. Simple as that. Financial, health, whatever, you name it. They're just concerned about Diego, dude. That's really all this comes down to. Is this dude doing right by this guy? That's it. That's all it really comes down to. And I wanted to see if he could give us some answers that assuaged some of those concerns. And I wanted him to have a chance to speak his mind. And so what would be the purpose in giving another interview there? And in, during the course of the interview, you have to thread this needle where you let someone say what they have to say but you don't let them say whatever they want to say. That's a fine line there between let this person speak but don't let them just dictate. And I was trying to and again I, I didn't get that totally right, but in general I got most of what I wanted out of that. So between rep, you know, repeating, if you see someone who's like disreputable constantly You know, getting a platform—that's a problem. If you see a person who's there's questions about about them, and then the interview just doesn't really ask anybody uh, ask them about it—that's a problem. But you have to speak to certain people. I think I think you would all agree. Fabio had a right to speak, or it was—I think there was a value in hearing him speak, and I think he had a right to speak his his voice. Um, Doesn't mean you have to agree. I didn't, but there's a value in that. You just can't let them say whatever they want. You can't let them have a repeated platform. And you can't um, you can't just let them dictate the terms. So that's the answer. All right. So with that in mind, let's switch things up. If you want to come back to it and there's a new question, I'll answer. But that's basically how I treat this whole thing. These are all my opinions, of course. Um, but I hope that matters. Let's see. Oh, my God. Uh, all right. Where's the question? Let me make sure the stream's okay. Da, da 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 da. Yeah, seems fine. All right. Question: What do you make of Poirier campaigning for a 170 bout with Quinta, another lightweight? It was well publicized that Connor jumped ahead of Gaethje in the 155 rankings after his welterweight scrap with Cowboy. Did Connor open a Pandora's box for other fighters? Who want to shift rankings without cutting weight, or do you think it's something that only Connor is privileged to? Connor's going to get more benefit from it probably than other fighters. But you'll recall, uh, Dustin Poirier, memory serves, has been a vocal advocate for the 165 pound division. In credit to um, um, Fabia, Fabia, excuse me, he was also arguing that that Sanchez and there generally should be a 165 pound division. He's not wrong. Now that's not his idea; it's a bunch of people's ideas. But I'm just saying. I think what Parier is looking at there is like, well, dude, if I don't have to cut weight and it's going to affect me at 155, what's there to lose? What, 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 why, why not do it? Um, I tend to hate the practice. I don't like it at all. I think if you want to go to 170, it has to matter for that division. But and we've talked about this. It's not the world we live in. So I did open a Pandora's box. First, let's see if the fight happens, and let's see what the rankings panels, panelists do. But the answer is it could be very well, Yes. And I tend to think, again, he won't get, if he goes in there and just like thumps I Quinta, which I'd love to, not. I'd not love to see Iaquinta get thumped per se, I'd be the best man win, but I'm saying I'd love to see that fight. But let's say he goes in there and just beats the brakes off of Iaquinta, or vice versa, whoever, and they get a big bump from it, well then you'd be like, ooh, there might be something to that. But it, it all, it really, the devil's in the details in terms of how the, the ranking panelists who have no idea what they're doing, end up doing. And I don't know how you fix that. What are your thoughts on, I'll keep this short because I know it's going to kill some people. What are your thoughts on politics intersecting with MMA? It seems the majority of MMA media and journalists are centered to left-leaning. Yes. Uh, and the overwhelming majority of fighters vary from traditional values to hard-right conservatism. Yeah, there's some that lean a little bit left. Carlos Condit's dad, um, I think, was a uh, chief of staff to uh, the former Democratic governor of New Mexico. And this person wrote, edit, this question has even more relevance since Dana White just spoke for Trump at his Colorado rally last night. I don't hear stick to sports when it's pro-Trump. Yeah, of course you don't. So here's the thing. I think everyone just needs to be a little bit honest about it. You guys get mad about it sometimes, but I think you would rather me not, I think you'd rather me just not out here pretending that I'm not who I say I am. I, I am I lean to the left politically, and I know a bunch of you don't like that. That's fine. I'm not here to convert you. That's not what this is about to be. I'm not about to give you a big spiel about why you need to hear my views all the time. That's not what I'm saying. I just think that the arguments against or mixing um, politics and sports, there is a real argument to it, right? Which is in general, if we're talking about Wilder versus Fury, and I know the race question kind of came up. I thought Tyson Fury handled it well. I think people from the U.K. don't understand racial dynamics here in the United States. Like, why do you Yanks make it all about race? Well, I don't think you guys really understand what you're saying when you say that. But, again, I'm not here to litigate that. Point point because I thought he handled it well. And in general, if you're talking boxing tactics between Wilder and Fury, what does what Bernie Sanders is saying or Trump is saying have to do with any of that? Nothing. It's a complete waste of time. It's utterly irrelevant. And so when people shoehorn it into these weird conversations, I think everyone's like, dude, what are you doing? It's not there's a time and a place for it, and this ain't it. So, okay, fine. Hold on. I'm sure I'm gonna... There we go. That's cool. I, I don't really have an issue with that. You know what? I think I might be able to raise my seat in a little bit. Hang on. Yes. There we go. Okay. Um, so that's, like, really when it gets irrelevant. If you're If you're breaking down, you know, who's going to win the big football game and what needs to happen between the coaches and blah, blah, blah... Or even just, you know, here's about the legacy of the program. I mean, there's so many ways where political considerations have absolutely no relevance whatsoever. And I think most people would agree with that. The problem that I think a lot of people don't want to admit, and this is why the conversation gets muddled a little bit, there are a lot of people, particularly in this sport, where there's a divergence in political views between the media class and then then the, um, the fan base. And as a consequence, they make the argument about, well, we don't want to see uh, politics intersect with sports. I don't think they're being honest about that. Because when, when you have fighters express you know, real right-wing views or just traditional sort of center-right views, whatever, no one really seems to get upset about it, at least not in the same kind of way because what they're really saying is, and I've, you found this out through, like, um, Clay Travis. Clay Travis is a guy who does good football coverage, who leans to the right politically. He covers um, mostly college football. He has often been like, oh, these guys like Beaumont Jones and these guys like, uh, you know, you name it over the ESPN. They're constantly mixing politics into sports. And it's like, he's not wrong about that, but your real objection is that you just don't like the kind of politics they are interjecting. Not so much that they're doing it. Yes, sometimes people shoehorn it in. When it has no relevance, but what I have found over time is that what they're really just saying is, I don't want your politics. Uh, I don't want politics generally where it absolutely does not belong, like X's and O's conversations. And if you are going to bring it in, I don't want yours. And I don't know why they can't just say that. Just say that. <laughs> who would be? What's the argument against that? Oh, you should hear my political views because they're more important. Like, who the fuck says something like that? Just, say, just be honest about why you don't want it. You don't want it because you don't agree with it. I, just can we? This is my thing about the anti-doping stuff. Oh, this is like, you know, this is like, uh, this is the, this is about protecting fighters. No, it's not. It, there's, it's like fighting is like smoking. There is no safe way to do it. MMA is and UFC is not safer. There are not less injuries at all as a result of USADA being there. If anything, they're up. Um, it's a ridiculous conversation. The real conversation is about USADA being there to protect the UFC's institutional interest. And by the way, that's not a bad thing. Hello, the UFC has a right to protect their institutional interests. But at least can we have a debate about what the reality is, not some stupid-ass side argument that's got nothing to do with it? So all I'm asking for folks is to say, stop saying you don't want politics in sports. No, nobody wants it where it absolutely doesn't belong. But there are parts where it intersects, especially when you're talking about labor uh, rights and labor law and contract law and who's entitled to what. These have political undertones, whether you want to acknowledge them or not. That's real. And then when you know uh, people are talking about these right-wing groups who are having uh, uh, using MMA as a a way to make headway socially in Europe, that's relevant. And when Nurmagomedov takes pictures with a warlord, dude, these are. Like, you're allowed to have a comment about it. Um, So, you know, if you don't like that stuff, don't click on it. Uh, It's my strongest recommendation. Uh, And then, can we just have a debate about what the debate's principally about? People are fine with their political viewpoints being used in sports, for the most part. And they don't like it when the opposite happens. I don't particularly love it when Dana White and Donald Trump are up there. But, like, it's just a reality. It's just a reality. So... The answer is um, I don't think it's going away. I think there are better ways to handle it. I just wish the conversation could be honest. The conversation is about what it's about. I don't want to hear your views on politics, Luke. Okay, all right. Fair. fine. But don't tell me what this is really about is we don't want um, politics and sports to be mixed. Mm, there's a lot of evidence that says that's not true. A lot of evidence. Hey Luke, are the days of the six foot six one tall light heavyweights over? A lot of new talent coming up through the rankings seem to be at least six foot four taller. Reyes, Walker, Rackage, Anthony Smith is tall too. And what does this mean for Jones's future fights? As it looks like he struggles with fighters that are smaller than that are similar to him, excuse me, in size. Yeah, uh, um, let's see if this trend continues. You're right about it. Although you know it varies seemingly a lot at heavyweight, like you got Ilir Latifi and Derek Lewis up there. You know, it's sort of a little bit weird in that sense. I would say let's see how it goes. I It, it, it tends to be, um, they've always been about six foot one or two, but it tends to be kind of going in up and down waves. So what does the next crop look like? If the next crop looks like that, then there might be a way where you're getting the self-selection around certain weight classes that produces these kinds of outcomes. But I think it's a little too early to say. Jesus Christ, I'm thirsty. Um, after your interview with Joe uh, Coming off the heels of the Sanchez versus Pereira fiasco What is the weirdest MMA fight you have ever seen? I was there when um, Matt Serra's brother, Nick Serra Wouldn't get off the canvas um, he's, He got leg kicked and then sat And they were like, you gotta get up You know how the person can like back up off And then the referee will stand him up and they gotta re-go He wouldn't get up he wouldn't get up. He was known as the Mad Monkey. He would come out with a monkey mask and like bananas and shit. It was a real thing. And uh, he wouldn't get up. And they just like, they waved it right there. I think they DQ'd him. That was in the Kimbo Slice fight with James Thompson. That was the same card as that, if, 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 if um, I'm thinking correctly. That was a weird one. I've seen some weird ones in uh, the regional sh- scene. Good Lord. I've seen some super weird ones. I saw one where a guy came out and kicked the guy right in the balls within three seconds. Then they waved it seen that. Um, I was there for Kimbo versus Dada. That was bad. Was that also weird? Can bad be me, be weird, depending on your viewpoint? So that's one. Um, the regional scene has been full of some weird ones. Um, those are probably the most ones that stand out to me. Would you ever do a watch party for fights or a movie with BC, dude? We've talked. There is so much stuff that he and I want to do together, that we're just limited by space and time. Um, you know, he goes to a lot more boxing fights than I go to, because CBS wants him out there. SiriusXM doesn't really need me for that right now, especially now that they have a much more of a boxing apparatus inside the channel. So I don't really go out there. But um, you know, we've talked about this. Uh, I guess I'm break, not breaking news here. I don't really cares unless you're super into this kind of thing. But um, he and I, whenever we do shows together for Showtime, I think that morning on Saturday is we're going to get together and do a live podcast where we just talk about whatever we want to talk about. We'll record it in the hotel room and then just, and just go with it. So we're going to start doing that. I think that's going to – I'm not sure where that's going to live yet. That might live on Morning Combat's channel. might live on mine. But, um, yeah, there's a dude, there's a bunch of stuff. We want to watch old fights together like Mystery Science Theater and kind of comment about them. Uh, there's, there's just, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff we want to do, but right now we're just not able to make some of those things happen by virtue of where we live. So we're working on some ideas. We'll see. Hopefully we can do some more projects together. Cause I like working with them and I think we got a good thing going, but we got to figure that part out. Uh, professor salt and pepper. I've been doing MMA for about eight years now and the associated martial arts, Muay Thai, BJJ. Wrestling. What uh, what I find very interesting is the distinct and often conflicting uh, pedagogical mindsets of each subcategory. In other words, the most apparent is when you compare BJJ to boxing. BJJ often encourages creativity, innovation, and exploration, whereas boxing is very rigid in the way that it is taught. I feel as though boxing coaches are not very open-minded, generally speaking and teach technique with the tone that implies that, quote, this is how it is done, and there is no other way to do it, end quote. I understand BJJ and boxing are vastly different sports and martial arts, but I feel as though boxing discourages innovation and creativity from the start. Thoughts? This is a phenomenal question, and you are absolutely right that this is a real thing that is currently happening inside the sport. So, why would that be the case? Well, um, you know, obviously judo is very old, and then... And then Japanese Jiu-Jitsu, uh, which was the precursor to formalized Judo, is even older. Now, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is a little bit newer. And we got to remember the history of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It was the Jiu-Jitsu versus Luta Livre people. It was literally the rich versus the poor. Why is that important? Because in the early days of Jiu-Jitsu, and for a time, it was the province of people who had access to it. And that meant it was a little bit insular, and a little bit uh, insulated. Also, if you think about jiu-jitsu as an offspring of judo, which it was to an extent, and then judo as an offspring of uh, original Japanese jiu-jitsu, which it was to an to a large extent, and then sambo being a creativity uh, offshoot of, um, to an extent, judo, as long as some other things as well. These are all sort of all forming over time, but the, but the basic idea is this. I think a couple things happened. One, when the Gracies brought it here, they kind of democratized it, where... Not merely did it spread to a lot of people, but it spread to a lot of income brackets. It's still kind of walled off a little bit, but it spread to a lot of income brackets. It's it's designed to be accessible to a lot of different kinds of people. If you're tall, if you're short, even if you're fat, if you're skinny, if you're muscular, if you're 40, if you're 20, if you're 10, if you're a male, if you're female, whatever. There's a kind of jujitsu for you. And so I think what that has done is that has created a lot of innovation in the sport over time. Plus, over time, there's been a series of rules that have been established, and people have then trained and and adapted and innovated to those rules. And now you're seeing Gi versus No Gi, and so now No Gi has its own adaptive uh, branch of history that it's going to be creating. And so it's new enough and democratized enough where this innovation is, is continuing. Boxing is a little bit different. Boxing, um, you know, I know they try to make it accessible to a lot of people. Bro, I mean, raise your hand if you've ever gone to a gym and sparred and like really trained boxing for the course of six months, right? It's fucking hard. <laughs> it's, it's real hard. Jiu jitsu training, I'm just going to say it out loud. Jiu jitsu training is a lot easier than boxing training for the average person. Now, if you're an elite athlete and you're training jiu jitsu in the way that Gordon Ryan might train it, or Keenan Cornelius, all bets are off. I don't really know. I tend to think that the sparring jujitsu is a little bit easier than sparring in boxing because it carries less potential. Um, you know, there's only so much sparring you can do before you really fuck yourself up. And that's true in jujitsu as well, but I think there's a higher threshold for it. And so I also there's the other part too, is like all that spirit all that training, all that experimentation leads to this process of discovery and development. Whereas in boxing you have fewer rounds you can really train. You have fewer rounds you're gonna fight. You have fewer rounds you can really you can hit the heavy bag forever, but in terms of like going mono mono with another person, so that's one part. Um, so so partly first, it's just it's going to weed a lot of people out. That's why you see I go to the office and like you know, the old lady who is human resources. I, I got to be I want to be on time for my kickboxing class. It's like yo bitch, <laughs> you hate training kickboxing. I don't know what it is you think you're doing down there, but it ain't kickboxing. But they try to make it accessible to a lot of different people. So one. It's not accessible. Box. I don't give a fuck what anybody says. Boxing, real boxing, it's not accessible to everybody. It's some of the hardest training I've ever done, and I sucked at it, and it was not easy, dude. And you get fucked up on those things. I mean, yeah, you, you get real. The only time I had, I thought training was as hard mentally as boxing training was actually wrestling training. Wrestling is hard no shit, too, dude. Very hard. In any event, so it's going to, you know, is wrestling for everybody? Nope. I don't care what anybody says it's not. So, uh, so that part, as I mentioned, the amount of time you can do innovative things, you have you know fewer rounds you can actually spar. I think that hurts as well. I think another thing I'd say is it's been around a long time, right? Um, there are more innovations than you might imagine in terms of small creative windows that people like Lomachenko create. You know, I, I don't know that it will play a role in tomorrow's fight, but I went back and I watched the second um, Fury versus Chisora fight. Did you guys realize that like Tyson Fury can fight? Um, in either stance, he started out in orthodox and then spent rounds in southpaw, beating the shit out of Derek Chisora. All right, he can go back and forth, you know. Um, and I just don't think a lot of times they use that stuff. But there's 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 innovative windows and in creativity that is there that sometimes pe- people fail to appreciate. But I think really the answer is between how hard it is, between the la- uh, a lack of time where you can spend like creatively working with another person, and the amount of time that you know boxing's been around. It's been around a long time, right? So people kind of know. I mean, pay-per-view has been in place since like the 60s. So people know, I mean, there's, there's less to discover. And partly there's less to discover because the rules don't allow for adaptation as much. They're not as wide open. Jiu-Jitsu rules are pretty wide open. You can attack the back. You can attack bypassing the legs. You can attack the legs, depending on the rule set. You can use the gi to choke someone, bow and arrow. You can, you know, all, there's all different kinds of stuff. There's just a lot of things that people don't know about Jiu-Jitsu. You know you can't. Do, people are like, why don't you do a spinning back fist in boxing? You can't use the back of the glove. That's why. You can use the back of the glove in jiu-jitsu or in um, sorry, in uh, in MMA. You can use the back of the glove in kickboxing, right? You can you can spin. You can do all kinds of stuff. Um, the rules just don't allow for as much adaptation. This is what I always try to do. Boxing is the shit. I always tell people this. When you really be, when you really begin to just say, I'm going to put my biases about this sport away and let me really focus on innovation and you begin to see the little tiny windows that these guys have to master and find their way into in order to succeed and how they do it and how clever it is you got to, you have you have you have a series of right angles you have four right angles you have a very narrow space in which to work you have to be very efficient with your movement you have to be very careful with your balance you have to be you have to have excellent vision you have to make good quick sharp decisions you have to know the difference between what it means to be here and here. Like, you you just, every little detail carries so much more weight than in MMA sometimes. where yes, little details matter there. I don't want to dissuade you from that. But with that open spacing and the wide variety of rules, it, it creates for a little bit more openness. Some might call it sloppiness. I call it openness. But you're much more confined in boxing physically and from a rule parameter. And I think that limits what you can do. So it makes what you do in each individual act super significant. Um, Tyson Fury has publicly stated he would like to fight in the UFC. Don't the guy also said he fucking jacks off seven times a day? Can you imagine hanging out with somebody who jacks off seven times a day every day? You're like, dude, we got to go to the movie, and then you go to the movie, and then the middle of the movie is like, bro, I got to go fucking jack off <laughs> in the bathroom. It's not. I mean, it's not a real thing. The dude is the king of trolling, and you got to. St- I'll believe it when I see it, and I don't think we're going to see it. He won't make nearly as much money. He'll get his ass whipped. No. Mm-mm. Don't believe the hype. Oh, I'm dipping my hands in gasoline. You think he's dipping his fucking hands in gasoline? Maybe for the cameras, but not really. The dude is not masturbating seven times a day. Uh, You know, it's crazy. All right. All right, so I, don't, I just don't pay no mind to that. Oh, wait, this question is about gloves. How much does fighting in a UFC cage and using MMA gloves sway the edge in favor of UFC MMA fighter winning? It would enhance his power if he ever did it. Because if you notice, like, sometimes what he'll do is, rather than keep a fist and then throw it, what he'll do is he'll oftentimes he'll just let his hand go and then he'll flick it like this in someone's face. Looks like he's trying to get a booger off, you know? And he'll do it in someone's face because he'll use it to blind, and then he'll switch angles or put some other attack behind it. Um, he, he wouldn't have to do that. He wouldn't be able to like, blind in that way. I mean, maybe he could a little bit. He's a big target. But if he could close his fist, even his jab, I think would carry significant power. All right, let's do some true-false here. If Khabib Tony took place on either of the first three occasions, Tony would have won, but now he's a little bit past his prime and Khabib should win. False. Chil Sonnen is lying about Adesanya's weight. He can't really weigh in the mid 180s on fight night. Um, I don't know. He might. He's tall. He's like tall as he's like tall as me, maybe a little bit taller. But he's just he's, I won't say skin and bones, but there's not much fat on him. Uh he he might be a smaller this is why because I've stood next to John. John's like, you know. And Adesanya, he's muscular, but he's not built quite like that. So I'll say, is chill, lying? I'll say false. Uh, Francis Ngannou is heavyweight champ next year. 2021? Shit, I'll say true. Henry Cejudo actually fights Volkanovski. Boy, he don't want that smoke. Come on, y'all. He don't want that smoke. He can say he wants it. He don't want that smoke. Volkanovski wouldn't. That'd be a bad day for Henry Cejudo, and I I've, 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 have tremendous respect for his abilities and what he did against Morais. Um, um, uh, but uh, out of all the crazy claims made by Diego's cult leader, this person writes, which one do you think is the most ridiculous? Just about the basic questions like why are you cornering a guy and you can't really tell me like what you do to be back there, not merely to be back there, but then, um, why you're the only one back there? Uh, to be the one that bothered me the most was probably maybe the one about like how, how slaves, you know, Raquito or whatever the fuck he was saying about slaves, but, um. The one about, like, why don't you give corner... Like, why don't you give... He was like, what is the problem with the way I was cornering? And the answer was, people were upset that it wasn't um, tactical enough. And he was like, I'm not really in a position to be giving tactical advice between rounds. I'm like, no, no, no. See, that's exactly what you're supposed to be doing. That was a bad one. What is your best guess as to why McGregor tweeted, Conor McGregor versus Diego Sanchez after Diego's fight last weekend? In your interview with Joshua... I heard him say this because he recognized Diego's supreme movement in defense. Is this why? No, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I think he did it just a troll. Uh, Israel's coach, that's Eugene Behrman, has been talking about passing light heavyweight and going to heavyweight to fight Stipe. Do you feel that's too big of a jump, and how do you think he'd fare? He's done well at uh, boxing heavyweight. I think he's even done s- some kickboxing heavyweight. I think that's right. Um, I'm not one to underestimate Adesanya. If you're asking me, my general conclusion, I think like most of you, I'm like, really. But I have been amazed by Eugene Berriman. I have been, com- you guys know, like I've been, I've, I've been converted to his, uh, his way of thinking. Adesanya is out here just beating the shit out of everybody, <laughs> you know, like. Yes. Do I have skepticism that that's a good idea that he could win? Of course I do. I'd be lying to you if I said otherwise. On the other hand, shit, man. I don't think that they're crazy. Um. I think they like their chances, and I, you know, I need to see it. I I call me Doughton Thomas, I suppose, but I'm intrigued. I'm not. I'm really not in a position to be like, oh, he can't do that. I've seen enough of people do that to out of Sonya, then have to eat a shit sandwich afterwards. I'm not going to be that guy. But you know, do I think that's one hell of a, <clears throat> a hell of a test? Yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, another Fabia question. We can skip. How does a seasoned veteran like Diego get tricked by a dude? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, we've kind of been over that one. Hey, Luke, Chuck Mendenhall summed up the Diego Sanchez situation very aptly. The fight game is a rally grounds for the disenfranchised. In the Fabia interview, you said you didn't understand too much about what he does and you were interested in, I assume, in his method and philosophy. Everything he said and the way he said it was textbook con con man, this person writes, snake oil salesmen speak, the pseudo-language, the deflection of questions, repeating your questions, asking himself questions that he wants to answer, and the very angry, defensive way he spoke. All of this is sprinkled in with the facts and science, which is supposed, you got to conjugate the verb there, to make you think his method is legit. It is not. Please tell me you understand he he is an absolute unequivocal, this person writes, con man that is taking Diego for everything he has. I also don't think it was a chance encounter that Fabio met Diego. I have a gut feeling it's a little more nefarious than that. Well, I don't have a reason to think that there's anything nefarious going on. And here's the thing. If you guys want to think that this is all, um, like he knows what he's doing is just selling you nothing and it's all an attempt to do that, I can't, I can't talk you out of that. And I'm not going to try because I don't really know what the situation is. I'll say, though, that I'm a little skeptical of the idea that this is some big act. Like maybe in his heart of hearts, he has different feelings about what his actual qualifications are. I don't know. But I do think he generally believes in his methods. I do think generally he believes he's good for Diego. I do believe generally this is something that um, he takes very seriously. Now that doesn't mean he's right. I mean, you could take something seriously and be terribly wrong about it. But this idea that's like, oh, he's in on the bit and he's just trying to prove it to the world or, tr- or trick them rather, um, maybe, I don't know. I, I, I tend to think it's just an issue of um, more incompetence than anything else. Devalishvili, shouts Devalishvili shouts to Georgia, the country. Is uh, making himself increasingly hard to ignore in in a really fun yet stagnant division. What do you see next for him and what is his ceiling? Well, here's the thing. Dude's got a motor like I've never seen. And he's got mental toughness like you just can't teach. I need to see a little bit more in the way of um, offense in a direction. Like there's just, i want to say there's two kinds of offense. But here are two types of offense. One is where these guys, they just kind of, they're able to do things and it works and it lands, but they're up against the clock, basically, right? The clock will dictate when they stop and start. And then there are other people who have this intentionality, not merely because they have somebody hurt and they're good at finishing them, but their offense just builds on itself. I've, I've still not seen Dvalashevili have offense build on itself enough. I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm saying against the elite, I could see a little bit more of it and I think I'd be a little bit more convinced. He's got a heart of a lion, and he's got a motor to go forever. Those are, those are going to get you far. What I want to see is his offense not continue, but build. Things you know who's good about making his offense build on its, on itself? Dan Hooker, Israel Adesanya. Um, who's another person like that? Uh, Justin Gaethje. The offense all kind of builds together, and then it produces these like devastating outcomes. That part, I think, is still in development. Which isn't to say, yeah, uh, understand what I'm saying. Oh, he can't get there. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying there's still some work to do in terms of refinement, I think, to get there. But he's got like these foundational abilities that are just next level. So, Oh, fun. Do I want to answer this one? Jesus, y'all are killing me today. Uh, Why is there this racist underbelly in the UFC fan base? And is there a way to address it? Oh, Lord. Uh, Okay, I'm not going to answer this question directly because Lord knows. I'm not trying to piss off large Swat. I'm trying to convince people who don't agree to at least hear me out. So let me just try and let me let me shift the way I would answer this in a way where I can keep you engaged. Again, I just want to have a debate about what the actual debate is about. If you don't think that what Henry Cejudo did, for example, was like crazy racist, because what you think what he was trying to do was just feminize a name, I understand that. Like I get it. I don't think he thought it was like I need to, I need to go find historically significant racist iconography and compare this African-American fighter to him. I don't think that's what he was trying to do. Uh, I think that if you do these bits where you're like, hey, your mom, your mom, your mom, hey, your mom, and uh, I banged your mom, and you know, I banged your sister, and like you guys are all pussies. If you do those kinds of juvenile bits, you're going to just wander into territory where you get yourself in trouble eventually. It's just inevitable. But I understand when people are like, well, what's the big deal? Because relative to other things, we're grading you know, truly offensive stuff, I don't know that you could grade it at the very top of the list, depending on what's on the list. The problem is this, y'all. The problem is this. I've been covering this sport for 14 years. We have situations where people are outright calling other people like the N-word or whatever. And it does not matter what the situation is. I have never seen somebody, I've never seen the community go, yeah, that's fucking racist. Every time. Every time for fourteen years, every time, everyone has said, "No, not really." It doesn't matter if it was low level, mid level, or high level. Not racist was the common denominator, guys. It's just not. It's not reality. It's not real. You're not living in the real world if it's been fourteen years since you've been able to detect, uh, again, inadvertent or otherwise, um, things of racial significance and and. Uh, Ill repute so my only p- problem is it's like okay you don't want to lose your shit over this fine don't lose your shit over this then the next time something's super serious can we fucking have a conversation about- like when that dude came out of prison andrea lee's husband and he had swastika tattoos and people were like oh what's, well, you know we had to do it in prison it's like you dumb fuck yes do what you got to do in prison to survive man i'm not judging you maybe wear long sleeves until you get that shit covered up when you get out Right. Don't wear the symbol of a party that murdered six million Jews in a coordinated gassing and um, among other variety of uh, modalities of death campaign on your fucking forearms if you don't have to. If you had to get that tattoo and do what you got to do, player. After that, I know there are tattoo shops around the country that will cover some of those up for free. You know, it's not hard to cover up. Just get a black square if you even have to. That'd be the first thing I did, dude. I wouldn't even want the moral weight of carrying that on me, and then people go out there and fucking defend that. It's like, dude, do you not understand how crazy it makes like people who are just trying to be, like, you know, well intentioned about all of this? If you can't even say when someone calls another person the n-word and has fucking Nazi tattoos, that shit is super not okay. You know what am I supposed to think about your ability to judge these situations accordingly? So, so that's really the issue. Is that? All right, enough of that, because I know everyone's like, but Luke, fucking calling a black dude Al Jemima is totally okay. No, it's super not okay, but all right. I don't want to die on that hill. Okay, uh, let's get to your questions here on the Super Chat. All right. So, Pauly writes, Big fan of the loose intro preamble you and Brian do for Morning Combat. You two should recommend a movie to each other every show and chat about them on the next episode. He texted me. He saw uh, 1917. Apparently, he, Brian loved 1917. I guess we'll talk about that on Monday. Where do you see the UFC in 2030? Who, who knows? Who knows? Um, I don't know. I hope in good place. Knowing JRE influence, do you feel responsibility to bring up contentious points and provide pushback on political points you disagree with rather than equivocate? Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't, you know, I think we're only going to talk for two hours. I don't know how much of that we're going to get to, but to the extent that we do. Yeah, absolutely. Will you do your best not to dwell on topics most do on JRE, which is trans athletes and women's sports? I have zero. I have, I have less than zero interest in that topic. Less SJW criticism. Yeah. I tend to think that's overheated nonsense. Not totally, but some. Pointless DMT talk. I did not think Rashad's DMT talk was pointless, but I don't have any frame of reference because I've never used it. UFC scoring 165 pounds. Well, I'm, I hope we talk about anti-doping. I am very, very hopeful we talk about anti-doping. Um, but in a way where... um, Well, I usually do it with nobody pushing back. I would love for him to push back. That would be fun. Not in like a fuck you kind of way, but in like a, hey, what about this? But, you know, trans athletes and women's sports, oh, you know, cease fire. I'm out. You know, it's not that I don't think it's an important topic. It's just that I don't I don't feel like either side of that debate has a very compelling argument. And so I'm just going to wait and see if someone else comes around and figures it out. Uh, why didn't you ever have a problem with Schaub doing boxing coverage for Showtime? same way you did about Stephen A. Smith on UFC 246 coverage. Great question. Number one, um, he wasn't taking that gig from anyone that I'm aware of. They just added him on. He only did, he did the stuff for the Mayweather McGregor thing, but he was important because he was representing the McGregor side of the equation, so that made sense. He did one Deontay Wilder stream and something else. Also, hello, Shab fought for a living. <laughs> like... The idea you can compare Stephen A. Smith, and y'all saw him hit the pads, to Schaub, whose boxing coverage you may or may not like, which by the way, he does a great job on his own podcast, to me is a, a, frankly, a laughable comparison. And he didn't do that much. And again, the issue is not about Stephen A. Smith. He's barred for life. He's not barred for life. Rio Rancho just happened. Now I know he's uh, he's in um, Las Vegas for the for um, Wilder Fury. I saw him and Max do first take. Fine, I I, I don't have a problem with his boxing coverage much either. I'm just saying, dude, if you're gonna get out there and you're gonna say outrageous shit, and then someone says, hey, maybe like learn up on this, um, okay, fine. Uh, I don't know why Schaub doesn't do more boxing coverage with Showtime. Um, I you know I tend to think obviously very highly of Brendan, um, but I don't think he was taking the gig from anyone that I'm aware of. Uh, And even if you want to argue he was, it was for a short amount of time, and to me this is the one that ends the debate, the guy fucking fought for a living. Like, I mean, what do we, how is that even remote, I mean, you're going to take Stephen A's MMA analysis over Brendan's boxing? Okay, right, he got, Brendan got torn to pieces for being like, yeah, I think Anthony Joshua's um, a little overrated. Sure enough, he goes in there and gets flatlined against Ruiz, and then, you know, beat Ruiz with good boxing in the rematch. But didn't exactly tell me he's gonna—he's the guy to beat Wilder or Fury. So, I don't know. I, I think it's frankly a silly comparison. Hey, Luke. Everyone is always up in arms about how MMA judges have no MMA experience and are pretty much boxing judges. But I was wondering, do these MMA boxing judges even have boxing experience? Yes, yes, they certainly do. Uh, a lot of them do. One of the problems in certain commissions, this is, this changes time to time, is that. They'll have uh, too much. Well, not too much boxing, experience. you Can you have too much? Um, decades, let's say, of it. So uh, the, then the issue is, well, geez, we got to find people who can do MMA. Big John McCarthy has made a good point to me. He's like, I've seen on commissions where they can take an MMA person and then make them a boxing judge, and they'll do pretty great. They have a much harder time taking a boxing judge and then turning them to an MMA judge. the The transference isn't as easy. I think that's something they kind of wrestle with. But if you're asking, do the boxing judges have boxing experience? Oh, wait, are you asking? Oh, sorry. Uh, Like prize fighting. Sorry, I misunderstood the question. Let me back up a step. Sorry about that. Uh, Some do. Some do. I've I've, I've been told that some of these people, you know, but it could have been like 40 years ago for some of them. Some do. It's not ubiquitous, uh, but it does tend to happen. But this is the point. The idea that you have to have fought, and this is where I get back to that credentialism point. Like Fabio is not totally wrong about some of the stuff when he says, well, when he at least argues about the idea anyway, that um, he didn't make it about judging explicitly. I'm going to sort of borrow just the credentialism point that I was making, which is you need to have a judge who's gone through the proper training to be a judge. But, and being a black belt in many ways, for example, could be very helpful. Being a former UFC champion in many ways could be helpful. But what really is going to be great is if you've done enough of the training related to that specific occupation and if you've got some of the natural talent for it. Some of that natural talent might come from the fact that you did fight. I don't think it has to. I think there's pretty good evidence that it does not have to. It can, doesn't have to. Will the UFC and athletic commissions lean towards... Check, check, yeah. Will the UFC and athletic commissions lean towards making fighters fight closer to their natural weight instead of 30 plus pounds? Well, they've already kind of done that, especially in California. The question is, what kind of steps do they take? Jack says, DC Native here. What's up, player? Thank you endlessly for all this free content. Uh, he said, This is what he writes. You are the best, uh, Ryan, Ryan Hall and Sadiq Youssef. Who has a better chance to be champ in the future? I'll just say Sadiq. I love Ryan. I'm friends with him. Only on the account that Sadiq is much younger. But Ryan Hall, I think, obviously the world of it, I think he's a very special athlete. Do you like the PFL format? I don't hate it, but I don't think it's much of a solution that people think it is. Uh, someone says, keeping your composure was hard in that interview. It was not that hard. I was focused on the task. Down goes Bloomberg. <laughs> boy, did he... Fuck, bro, he got... Elizabeth Warren took that boy to the woodshed. Whoa. Whoa. He got smoked. I'm not much of a Liz Warren fan, but I was watching her. I was like, have at it, young lady. What do you think of Bowser endorsing Bloomberg? Man, fuck Bowser. She's the mayor of D.C. Fabia seems to be at the end of the spectrum. How can a fighter identify fraudulent teachers that are more subtle? What? How can a fighter identify fraud? Um, I don't think most fighters would have an issue with it, to be honest with you. Should Diego have Frank Dukes in his corner too? Hey, you know, Frank Dukes provided for some good entertainment. Some good stories with some good entertainment. Following Juan Adams' release, what is a better criteria for the Contender Series to use to sign high-level fighters? Think you need multiple wins, man. One win of a knockout in thirty seconds is not enough, dude. Even sometimes a win in two rounds where you stomp a guy out is not enough. You gotta, dude. Again, I'm not the biggest fan of the Ultimate Fighter. I'm glad it's gone, or at least gone for now, or whatever. But but winning a tournament tells you a little bit, not the whole world, but a little bit gives you some indication of what happens here. How many times on this channel have we talked about talent identification? Whether you're an NFL t- team scouting, whether you're the UFC and you're trying to find. Dude, talent identification is hard. It's hard to know who's going to blossom when. Beating a bunch of fighters in a tournament is not the ultimate proof, but I think it's better proof in general in general, than one solid win. There's one question here I think it's inappropriate to read, so I won't. Fuck. What fighters would you like to see go tip to tip? Yo, ask Brian Campbell that shit. By the way, ask him about why he regrets bringing all this up. Uh, thoughts on Angela Hill capabilities and then the strawway division. Well, strawway it's amazing this is what her sixth her sixth fight in 11 months like shots to uh, Angela Hill she's such a badass she's a great representative for the city uh and the area um i think she's got a work cut out for her against uh this Thai lady Luk me. Loma Luk Me. she's got a work cut out for her big time in that fight but but um, I think she's beginning to turn a corner in her career. Some of the stuff is finally starting to like come together. Before, it felt like she had not just strengths and weaknesses, but like a siloed game, like it didn't flow together. And now it feels like things are beginning to like just... Th- the level is being raised, and then everything is kind of coming together. It kind of feels that way for me. So I'm really excited for her future. I don't know if she wins or not tomorrow, but she's doing great things. Brendan says jiu-jitsu is the worst specialized skill set for MMA. Do you agree or disagree? And if so, it was the best... Um, it can be, it can be, you know, in modern jujitsu, if what you're learning is, you know, guard pulling with the gi and then Baron and then, um, bow and arrow chokes, not a lot of that is relevant. That's why you want someone to innovate. I've been a big believer in this. Do you guys ever go back and watch Hirohiko Yoshida from pride? He would fight in MMA in pride with the gi on. Now his opponent wouldn't have the gi, but why would you want the gi if only you have the gi and someone else doesn't? A lot of reasons, but one is it makes Ezekiel chokes. You can, and By the way, you can Ezekiel choke from the mount. You can Ezekiel choke from the back with the gi. A lot of folks don't realize that. You can Ezekiel choke in, in two different directions with the gi. I've always said, bring the gi into MMA. It, it will totally up the number of uh, submissions that are available. I'm a big fan of that idea. Someone please try it in a place where the, where the government's not getting in the way. Will says, as a lawyer, I just wanted to let you know that you would do really well in law school and as an attorney. (laughs) No offense. Uh, None taken. Yeah. Um, I'd be like, what was was the, the lawyer from The Simpsons? Lionel Hutz? Every vindication comes with a free pizza. Oops, the box is empty. What are your thoughts on Canelo versus Billy Joe Saunders? I'm more interested in the third fight with Triple G if they can make it in September. Um, Helwani said it was sad to hear MMA fans attack Sanchez, who was the plaintiff, quote-unquote, in the DQ win. In other sports, this is not common. Uh, I'm not sure I understand. He's the plaintiff. Does the plaintiff... I mean, are the plaintiffs always Right. Right? I mean, the plaintiff plaintiff or defendant, that position by itself does not confer uh, guilt or innocence or uh, merit in terms of their case. I'd have to hear what he said. I don't really quite understand that. Best boxer in MMA at the moment. Ooh. Uh, Jorge Masvidal good. Kickboxing is a big part of it, but I like the handwork of uh, Volkanovsky. Poirier is good. Again, Connor's good in his own way. Um um yeah those are some good ones what makes them so effective accuracy timing sharpness of the shots um again what can you do in a little tiny super short window with just the right movement just the right timing just the right vision just the everything is just where it needs to be just the right balance you know that kind of a thing um that's what sort of stands out to me Mystery Zion's Theater. That's for free. Okay, maybe not for free. Oh, for me and BC? Yeah, that'd be cool. What will Zufa Boxing be? Fuck if I know. Does it even exist? Oh, me me and Floyd had a handshake deal. Right. You have no deal? Oops. Someone says, stoked for all your success in 2020. Keep up the good work and the great breakdowns. Thank you, sir. Why do you think the UFC stopped doing military application events? They used to support a lot, but now it seems like they were just using the troops. Uh, A lot of times, that can just be the government using the sports to recruit, so maybe they stopped paying for it. Like, when you see a lot of the stuff at NFL games, it's because the Defense Department pays for that. You're let go from all your jobs, and you have the following options. One, UFC prez. Two, UFC matchmaker. Three, UFC fighter union prez. Four, NFL GM pay. uh, If you're asking about what my labor of love would be, I would say UFC fighter union. But, you know, they're all good jobs, I suppose, in their own way. Could Bellator sign Bigfoot Silva? No thanks. I mean, yeah, they could, but I really hope they don't. In the Felder versus Hooker fight, who do you favor over five rounds? So, Felder has lost a fight due to cuts, but he's never been stopped with strikes. I don't think Hooker's going to take it to the ground so while in general, um, I I like Hooker in that fight. There's a certain tenacity about Felder that gives me a little bit of pause with a with a hardcore prediction for Hooker. Hooker seems to be smoother, trickier, rangier. Felder's a little bit grittier, more of a pocket-based striker, a uh, bit of more of a bit more of a volume guy, and he's just tough as fucking nails. So. That makes it a little dicey to try and figure out who has beaten a higher level of opponent. I'm going to say Dan Hooker with the win over uh, Iaquinta. What date are you going on JRE? It's supposed to be March 24th, um, but I don't know when it's going to go up. Thoughts on Reyes being ranked 15 on pound for pound? Yeah, I don't understand that. I'm not one of the, but I'm not big on pound for pound rankings. That that to me is where you begin to just. You know, how many angels fit on the head of a pin kind of considerations. What Athletic Commission, why does the Athletic Commission bother testing for picograms? Would the waters get murky understanding whether the substance was taken purposely or not? Coming in on the tail end of the chat, how sad is it that BJ seems to be on the decline still with the alleged DUI? I mean, I've said everything I can possibly say about the guy at this point. I'm not going to beat up on BJ. BJ needs help, and that's the end of it, you know. To elaborate, sorry, this person writes, more people are dogging Sanchez for accepting the DQ win versus dogging Pereira for throwing the illegal knee and getting DQ'd. Oh, I see. Okay, that makes a little more sense. Right, well, I think the reason is sort of fairly standard. The Pereira throwing of the illegal knee was not great, Um, but a lot of times these guys can do things in the heat of battle that... They later regret that uh, they deserve to be punished for, but you can sort of understand how they arrive in that position, whereas uh, the DQ was a considered position that Sanchez had adopted. Now, again, I've said this before, I think that the way that the financial structure has fucked fighters for so long means that the fighters want to stick it back to the powers that be by taking a double of their purse, by taking just a you know easy way out or something. I, I, I don't care. It doesn't bother me. Especially when... Diego has been a blood and guts fighter for so many years, um, but the idea would be it's one thing to look, it's one thing to manipulate the rules for a what would be considered to be a cheap win, versus making a mistake, playing speed chess. Oliveira is a threat to Khabib. Tell me why I'm right. I don't think you are. So there you go. Uh, all right, I think that's it. Well, I appreciate everyone tuning in. Uh, oh, last thing on this, I meant to upload last week's audio and I didn't because I'm a douchebag. So I will upload that today, and I'll put up this episode as well. Oh wait, there's was there one more? No, that's it. Okay, um, so I appreciate everybody watching. Thank you so much. For more, oh, let me put it up here. Hang on. Yeah, there we go. Uh, subscribe, of course. Like the video. For all my information about my podcast, which is my radio show, but in podcast form on Sirius XM. Radio show you got to pay for? Podcast is free. Radio show is available in North America. Podcast is worldwide. It's the best of. Please go check it out. I had Paulie Malinaji pr- preview Wilder Fear today. He fucking was awesome. And I had Eves Edwards preview Hooker versus Felder. He was awesome. We also talk about how shoeys are played out. So go check that out. Um, And, uh, Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's the whole stuff. Thanks to everyone who watched the Fabia interview and shared it around. I really appreciate it. Thanks for all the questions today. Tomorrow, I'm not sure what we're doing. I might do a post-fight show for Wilder Fury. I might do uh, a watch party. I I don't know. We'll see. I'll do something, I think. So be on the lookout for some announcements. Uh, All my social media is in the description box below. Podcast, radio show, morning combat. I've got too many things going on, to be quite honest with you. But there we have it. So thank you guys so much for watching. Until next time. Stay effing frosty.